So, be honest. Over this pandemic year, staying at home, Koi, Dom, mm-hmm. how many fights have you had over chores? <laughs> oh. oh, boy, Pippa. Um, well, I, I'd rather not say that on the record, honestly. <laughs> yeah, neither would I. But I will say that it has been a source of tension at times. Same here. And this was also a problem facing designer Amy Cecil and her husband Xander Furness. We were living on top of each other. We were in lockdown. We were not leaving the house. And so it was just like this house of chores was even more imposing. And he was, in my mind, not doing it. Or I thought I was doing more than half the work. Yeah, um, I, I think it was even stronger than that. You thought you were doing way more than I was. I thought I was doing way more than half the work. They could not figure out a way to make it feel fair, right? Mm-hmm. And it resulted in some passive-aggressive moments, which might sound familiar to some of us. So, hey, babe, can you take out the trash? Hey, babe? Uh-oh. It's sort of a loving phrase, but, uh... You're softening the impending blow. Never has there been a more fear-inducing sentence starter than, <laughs> hey, babe, when you're at home. <laughs> no kidding. And so Amy decides to design a solution to this. And her design superpower is particularly useful here because she is a data visualization designer. Oh, so data visualization. So she's used to collecting a lot of information and she's used to boiling it down to something easy to understand Mm -hmm. and illustrating it somehow, right? That's right. So we came together and created this spreadsheet of what tasks needed to be done. And then once we had all of these chores in, we did a little bit of a calculation and gave them a point value of how much time. Like the monthly expected minutes of this task. (laughs) This is weirdly, charmingly specific, I think. And so armed with this data, Amy set out to design a visualization for all of those chores. It's basically, you know, a grid of squares and every square corresponds to five minutes of a task, essentially. And every time you do one, you cross one off. So if vacuuming takes 15 minutes, that's three squares on the chart. Hmm. An hour of window cleaning, that's four squares. I need one of these. (laughs) Koi, we all need one of these. It's hard to ignore the data when it's like staring you in the face from your wall. Chore work is sort of thought of as invisible labor. So it's no longer invisible labor. If one of us is behind on accomplishing a chore, then it's not crossed off on there. And if I need to hey babe you and remind you to do something, I have data to back it up. (laughs) (laughs) So Amy's saying that that chore chart makes the invisible visible which is also a really tidy way to think about data visualization design in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a well-designed graphic, what it does is it pulls out the hidden story behind the numbers and reveals all the patterns in that data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's been more important than ever during the pandemic. You know, understanding case numbers, uh, infection prevention data, vaccination rates. Exactly. I mean, we all know what flattening the curve means now. This right. kind of design is in the zeitgeist. And Amy noticed how much it mattered to her own life, too, chore charts aside. In pandemic, right, some of your decision-making is based on that data and visually seeing that chart. So if you were going to walk out of your house and was it safe to attend this event, you were looking at case counts in your area to make those day-to-day decisions. Yeah, and you know, some of these visualizations, they really did an incredible job of helping us understand the the magnitude of the outbreak. There's one that I still think about from the New York Times front page. It, it visualized 
half a million American deaths to COVID, right? Mm-hmm. They, they showed it pixel by pixel. So the graphic, it starts with just a smattering of dots at the top of the page. Mm-hmm. But then as you scroll down the page, you know, the months tick by and you get more and more and more dots. So by the time you get to the bottom, the graphic is just solid black. Yeah. You know, John, I think that's the magic of visualization. I mean, it brings numbers to life. And even more than that, it makes you feel something that you might not feel otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, data visualization makes data more meaningful for humans. Yeah. And so this work is about much more than just making it look good. Amy says it's an exercise in compromise between the designers who create the visualization and the researchers who generate that data. You know, it is sort of like a marriage, the bridge between these two things. So if the designer is just off making things pretty, they're not understanding the data properly. Or if the data scientist is not bringing in a designer at all, it's not going to visually communicate what they want. So, guys, that's what we're leaning into today. We're going to look at how far designers can push the design side of this balance, this Mm -hmm. marriage. Mm -hmm. And we'll look at what responsibilities designers have to the numbers side of things. But also, more importantly, Pippa, can data save Amy and Xander's marriage? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we'll come back to that, too. Design. Creativity. Wireframe, a podcast from Adobe. So if we're looking into how far designers can push data visualization design, we should start with Shirley Wu. She's a data visualization expert just outside of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And she also co-authored a book called Data Sketches. And Shirley has visualized all kinds of things, like how America relocates its homeless population, or she's tracked the relationship between every single line in the Hamilton musical. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is quite the range. Yeah, yeah it is. And so when the pandemic hit, like a lot of us, Shirley found that she really wanted to understand it much better. One of the things about us as human beings is that we have a really hard time grokking numbers, but we're really good at understanding patterns visually. A lot of the data and a lot of the visualizations that were coming out at the time was very much at like a very big numbers level. Like all of the data were like at the national level or at the state's level. And those are such large numbers that we just can't wrap our minds around. Yeah, like we were saying, it's easy to get kind of numbed to numbers. Mm. Right. And Shirley was seeing a lot of skepticism out there. I mean, people weren't taking COVID seriously or they just didn't understand how their actions affected other people. I had read at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the top epidemiologists talking about how the most powerful way to get ahead of a pandemic is to communicate to the public how scary the pandemic will be even before it becomes a big deal. So she wanted to scare people into taking it seriously, I guess. Yeah, basically. So here's how Shirley tackled this. She didn't just design a great chart or an infographic of some kind. What Shirley did was turn the data into a game. Ooh, huh. Okay, so you can find that game at peopleofthepandemicgame.com, and we'll add a link to that in the show notes. Okay, I've got the game loaded up, and it's asking for a zip code. Right, so the point of the game is to show you how a pandemic can spread based on the choices that you make, and also the choices Mm. that your neighbors make. So it uses your zip code to pull real population and health data for your specific community. Yeah, you'll be brought into kind of this like dashboard-like a game. 
<laughs> uh, UI, where in the center there is a view of your community. It has buildings and it has houses and like one, you know, community area with park and cafes. And as the week goes by, there's all of these like dots that represent people in your community. They're like, you know, going to the cafe or restaurants or to the park and doing their usual thing. Okay, so the game simulates basically five weeks of living within this zip code. Hmm. And every week, you get to decide how often your dot leaves the house. Yeah, I see those options here. Like, mm -hmm. it says, how many times do I want to go get food, uh, leave to get exercise, or gather in groups? Those kinds of choices. Yeah. And as you run the simulation from week to week, your choices and the choices of other players who played before you, all of that gets crunched together. <laughs> That's a lot of data points. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It really is. I mean, this way you get a snapshot of how the collective decisions of everyone affects the caseloads. And what it does is it either limits the spread of infection or it makes it worse. What you decide to do doesn't actually change the outcome of the numbers all that much. Everybody else's decisions are actually even more important than your own decisions. So we wanted to kind of like show how important it is to kind of like convince your own network of friends and family to do what you're also doing. Okay, so I'm playing this out here. And yeah, now I'm noticing in the corner this little graphic of hospital beds and they're getting filled up. Yeah. Right. Again, that's from actual health data. And it shows really just how vulnerable the ICU in your community is to getting overwhelmed. We basically got the numbers as close to how COVID spreads as possible. And with that simulation, usually the beds get filled up in like week two, week three, and it's super fast. And that's kind of the whole game in a nutshell. It's a pretty compelling experience to play the game and see those beds filling up, right? Right, isn't it? So I asked Shirley about this question that we're looking into today. Is she looking for people to think about the data or to feel it? And here's what she said. <laughs> the simple answer is I want both. <laughs> I want you to think and feel. It's very important to give you the numbers and give you the correct numbers. But at the end of the day, you're not going to remember any of the numbers I presented. What you're going to remember is how the story made you feel. Okay, so by making the data interactive, by making this visualization playable like she did, it makes the data more tangible. Yeah, and by turning data into a game, I mean, what Shirley's doing is that she's really pushing at the boundaries of what's possible with data visualization design. Yeah. You know, this really is a fun way to think about telling stories with data. And, and if the goal, like you said, is about making us feel the numbers... I mean, I can think of other out-of-the-box ways that designers are doing that. Like one that comes to mind for me that I've noticed in the past year as well is how some designers are trying to sonify data instead of visualizing it. Huh. Yeah, like using sound to make the data come alive. Yeah, yeah. It's called, I mean, what else? Data sonification. <laughs> so some have sonified COVID data, for example. Right. Yeah, we kind of did this a little bit ourselves earlier when you were talking about the New York Times visualization, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. 
Another example from the past year is how some have sonified the the stock market. Like, you remember how wildly it was behaving? <laughs> of course. Yes, I do. I definitely do. Well, Jordan Wurfsbrock, she's a PhD student in information science. She's a data journalist. She took a crack at trying to turn that into a sonification. It, it sounds like this. Mm. Boy, that is not a particularly calm-sounding market. No, isn't it? Really captures how everything felt totally haywire. Hey, yeah, yeah. On on the calmer side of things, uh, NASA will use data sonification. For example, they'll they'll take X-ray data from deep in space and turn that into sound, so we can basically like hear a distant galaxy. Space is clearly a calmer place than Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. So it's pretty neat to see how people are pushing the boundaries of designing a story with data. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a game, a sonification, or a more conventional data visualization, like in a newspaper. Yeah. But there's always a risk to this work. I mean, a designer needs to make sure that the focus isn't on simply making it look or sound good. Mm-hmm. The work really has to be in service of the data first and always. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings us back to that marriage metaphor that Amy mentioned at the beginning, right? How it's a balance between the data and the design. Yeah, and that's something that Alberto Cairo thinks about a lot. Well, it is possible to go too far when trying to embellish sort of like a, a visualization by adding bells and whistles and decoration and... Uh, you know, illustrations through a data graphic and stuff. I'm not against that, though, if it makes the visualization more approachable and more understandable. Alberto wrote the book How Charts Lie, and he's also the night chair of visual journalism at the University of Miami. I I like that point that he makes. If a visualization isn't appealing or approachable, well, it isn't worth much. Yeah. Yeah, me too. But there again, a designer really has to be careful because it's really easy to misrepresent the data. And those kinds of decisions can really have life or death consequences. I mean, again, think about this pandemic. Many people were persuaded that the pandemic was not a big deal. In part, I strongly believe, due to that type of graphic that compared the mortality of the pandemic to other types of mortality in a a wrong way. For example, I saw people comparing the number of deaths of COVID-19 at the beginning of the pandemic to the number of deaths for other causes, uh, such as uh, traffic accidents and things like that, trying to minimize the gravity of the pandemic, saying, you know, only 200 or 300 or 1,000 people have died of COVID-19, but every year in this country we have like, you know, 10,000 people dying in car accidents. Therefore, the pandemic is not that important. Well, that's an unwarranted comparison. It's a wrong comparison. It's a distortion. I think that that had an impact on public's perception of the pandemic at the very beginning, and that was dangerous. So the designer's responsibility then is to make sure that the data that they're using is good, but also make sure that the comparisons they're making are fair. Yeah, that's right. But you also have to make sure that how you're presenting it or how you're visualizing it doesn't accidentally lead people to draw the wrong conclusions. The boundary is when, by including all those elements, we somehow 
distort the data or we use certain design techniques that may transform the shape of the data. I'm thinking about, for example, perspective, right? Or 3D displays. Those can be extremely dangerous when presenting data because they distort the perception. I've seen, for instance, businesses creating graphics in 3D with a perspective. So the bars in a bar graph that are closer to the viewer appear much larger than they really are than than the, than the bars that are far away from the reader, which look much smaller than they really are. So by adding a, an embellishment, by adding sort of like a special effect, the perspective that makes a graphic look more dramatic and more eye-catching, we are also distorting the perception of the data. And that can be risky. Yeah, that seems like a super easy mistake to make. Like mm-hmm. You might not even realize that you're making it. For sure. And actually, Alberto says that the best way to avoid these kinds of mistakes is to be super clear about the story that the data wants to tell. Your primary purpose is to create something that conveys the information in a truthful manner, in a clear manner, but also in a deep manner, in a way that doesn't oversimplify the information that you're trying to present. Design is about making things more understandable and clearer. And as a byproduct of that, it usually becomes more beautiful. It's a classic design irony, right? The more clear and simple something looks, the more complicated the work probably was to make it look that way. Yeah, that's (laughs) so right. Which is why Alberto cautions all designers to examine the data that they work with very carefully. All data sets should have a label that says handle with care. So the responsibility of the designer is not just shaping the data visually or graphically in a way that can be understood. The responsibility begins even before that, making sure that the information that we are presenting is the right information. It is extremely powerful, but as you know, the old Spider-Man movie said, with great power comes great responsibility, right? So that puts a lot of responsibility on the hands of the designers and statisticians and scientists to get it right. And this is actually something that Shirley Wu and I talked about as well. You can obscure things, you can leave things out, or you can choose a chart form that, you know, biases more towards one finding than the other. It's very easy to have a biased visualization. Right. So certifying your data is a whole job in itself. Yeah, right. I mean, a data visualization designer's job is actually a lot of jobs all rolled up into one. It actually takes a very wide range of skills. There's the data collection part. There's the data analysis and cleaning and trying to understand it. And then there's also the design skills. There's like the coding skills that you might need. And also there's the storytelling skills. And really, this is what fascinates me about how the design work that goes into these visualizations plays out. I mean, any talented designer can make the data look good, but telling it just right and making us feel something about that story, I mean, that's really where the art of it is. Mm. Yeah, just like how in Shirley's game, putting us inside a community makes us feel the worry, the fear, the consequences of ignoring the risks. And, you know, you could even say that Amy and Xander's chore chart, I mean, that helps them empathize with one another and really kind of makes for a happier home. Yeah. Which, you know, it's been really important this year. I I mean, I did ask earlier if data visualization saved Amy and Xander's marriage, Pippa. Yeah. And you know what? It's a good question. The chore chart's a funny story to tell, but like, was it effective? Yeah. If you remember, hey, babe, was the dreaded phrase in Amy and Xander's house. (laughs) And I'm happy to report good news. 
There are fewer hay babes in our house now. We have fewer squabbles. I'm less resentful. I also feel better sort of just knowing, like, if I'm doing these things, I'm, like, not being a crappy partner. I'm, like, pulling my weight and can be confident in that. And that's nice, too. Data visualization to the rescue, once again. Right. And and more than that, I kind of like to think of these two as a metaphor for the whole episode. Mm. Like we said at the beginning, right? Good data visualization is a marriage between data and design, which is literally this couple's story. He's a researcher and she's a designer. Mm. <laughs> so last year, we decided to get tattoos. We sort of joke that I am the viz and he is the data. And so on my wrist, I say viz. And mine says data. <laughs> I really feel like I understand who this couple are now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think they're going to be fine. Yep. <laughs> if you want to check out any of the data visualizations we mentioned or Shirley Wu's pandemic simulation game, you can find links in the show notes to this episode. Here's some data about Wireframe you can trust. It's produced by Pippa Johnstone, Koi Vin, and me, Dominic Gerard. With sound design by Christy Chan and Sean Cole. Special thanks to producer Aparita Bendari for her help with this episode. I'm Koi Vin, Senior Director of Design at Adobe, and this is Wireframe. Find out how Adobe Creative Cloud can help you visualize your own creativity at adobe.ly slash wireframe. <laughs>